In today's world, it seems to be all about the capes and tights. Despite the characters getting all the attention on the big screen, there's a large history of writers and artists who have gone into making those characters, who they are today. Many of the people who go into making such media masters go largely unnoticed in comparison to all the branding and attention their characters can get. So who are these people who have made such fantastic characters as Superman, Spider-Man, such classics that have stuck with us like Archie and the Peanuts? What kind of industry has permeated our culture so much as to have lasted so long through the reboots and reprints? My name is Lee, and I welcome you to Beyond the Panels. In this podcast, we aim to explore the people and history of what has become an industry giant. Before we get into the details, I would like to put a disclaimer that all properties and characters that we mention are copyright their respective owners. Part 1. The Firsts. Like a lot of kids, I was introduced to this medium at a young age, my first comics being the tales of Calvin and Hobbes and Peanuts. The Sunday Funnies. Comics have a quality that a lot of people can overlook, for the flashy capes and heroes we're used to, but one of the impressive things about comic books or how versatile they can be as a storytelling platform. And it all started in a newspaper, in the Sunday Funnies. On October 18, 1896, William Randolph Hearst and his father, George, would change publication history forever. Within the New York Journal on this date was the first modern color comic strip, drawn by Richard F. Outcult, titled The Yellow Kid. It was satirical, and though it wasn't the first satirical imagery in print, it blew up on the popular culture scene. As it stated in the 2012 book, The Comic Book History of Comics, however one wishes to define the difference, The proof that something big had happened was in the public reaction to it. The Yellow Kid became an instant cultural phenomenon. His buck-toothed mug appeared on books, shirts, tins of ginger wafers, bowling pins. There were even Yellow Kid cigarettes. The idea caught on and inspired many artists, including the famous Max Fleischer, who would later go on to create cartoons like Bimbo the Dog, Betty Boop, Popeye, and even some Superman shorts. By the late 1920s, competitors had found a new and even cheaper way to publish what was already only 10 cents for a comic book, which was a collection of strips featured in the newspapers and original stories. In modern currency, it was about $1.44. Through the use of pulp paper, a very poor quality page, publishers literally halved the consumer's costs. Stories of all kinds were told within these pages, from dramatic soap operas to daring sci-fi journeys. In fact, it was one of these pulp fictions that inspired a young Jack Kirby to look into art. Kirby would later become one of the most 
prolific comic book artists of all time and created many characters, including Captain America along with Joe Simon and the Fantastic Four, X-Men, Hulk, and Avengers with Stan Lee. He would also later create his own, like Darkseid, Mr. Miracle, and other new gods, which are now published under DC. As far as business was for these magazines, things looked good. They were dirt cheap and told a variety of stories for every demographic, including some rather racy ones. But the market was about to create its own story that would shake the very pages of history. In 1938, after years of consuming vigilante characters like the Shadow, the Phantom, and the Spider, who served as the predecessors for modern-day superheroes, a new kind of book hit the shelves. An alien from a distant planet who could outrun a train, jump over tall buildings, and look good in tights. Superman was shown in Action Comics number one and showed off the first of what was only meant to be a side story, later inspiring an entire archetype. Superman sold extremely well and prompted the publisher, later DC Comics, to request more of these types of serialized prose stories. Later, in the Detective Comics run, we were given legends like Batman and the beginning of Marvel Comics. These legends went on to capture the hearts and minds of people of all ages, inspiring film serials, radio plays, and even going as far as to rally up patriotism in the Second World War with characters like Batman, Superman, and the Justice Society, Namor, and Captain America, inspiring readers to buy war bonds, enlist in the armed forces, or inspire social change in their own neighborhoods, advocating acceptance of immigrants, decrying the evils of pollution, and calling out slumlords for taking advantage of the poor during the Great Depression. Superheroes had taken over the comic industry, leaving the popular genres of romance, westerns, horror, and science fiction distant runners-up. However, in 1954, comics began to become victims of their own popularity, as the quack psychiatrist Frederick Wortham published The Seduction of the Innocent, a book which claimed that comic books existed solely to corrupt the minds of younger readers. Wortham claimed that characters like Batman and Robin were lovers, and that DC advocating youths to experiment with homosexuality in the pages of various Batman titles, as well as in Wonder Woman. Wortham additionally believed Superman, of all characters, to be an anti-American fascist. He also blamed juvenile delinquency on superheroes. Although nearly all of his claims were exaggerated and falsified due to some personal vendetta, on Wortham's part, the negative stigma stuck. It was the height of the Red Scare. The Doomsday Clock was set at two minutes to midnight, and 
anything that was remotely anti-American or dangerous to the country and its youth was considered vile. Wortham's criticisms, and others like his, resulted in the creation of the now-defunct Comics Code Authority, where the industry banded together to mark most of their series as acceptable publications for all ages when faced with the threat of government regulation. Comic book bonfires were held, and the negative attention Wortham brought to the medium is still something the industry is trying to get away from. By the mid-1950s, DC only published three superheroes in their own titles, no doubt a result of Wortham's insane crusade. Welcome to the Silver Age. Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman were the valiant group of heroes who still survived. For a moment. The Silver Age of comics arguably began in 1956 with the debut of Showcase Number 4, featuring a new incarnation of The Flash, a speedster superhero who had been popular both as a member of the Justice Society and as a solo act during the Golden Age. However, this Flash wasn't Jay Garrick, the superhero in jeans, a red t-shirt, and a helmet that echoed that of the god Hermes. This Flash was down-to-earth, relatable Barry Allen, a crime scene investigator who, even with his speed powers, struggled to make it to his job, social functions, and even dates on time. After Barry resonated with readers, the same approach was taken to other intellectual properties. When Green Lantern arrived in the scene in 1959, he was no longer Alan Scott, a railroad worker who stumbled upon a magic lantern. Instead, he was Hal Jordan, a fearless, reckless pilot who became an intergalactic policeman, part of a cosmic group called the Green Lantern Corps. 1961 brought around similar re-enterprises of older characters like Hawkman and the Atom. However, the year 1960 brought about something very important for DC Comics. The first superhero team of the Silver Age, and inarguably DC's greatest and most well-known group of heroes, the Justice League of America, a group concocted by Gardner Fox, the creator of characters like Zatanna, Starman, Hawkman, and the Silver Age Atom. The original League, as defined by Fox, is still the most well-known version of the team. Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman banded together with the new Flash and Green Lantern, as well as Aquaman and the Martian Manhunter. Team members would come and go, but the original Big Seven is recognized in and out of canon as the quintessential iteration of the group. A year later, on the other side of town... Stanley, by then already a veteran in the field, had had it with the industry. The company, formerly known as Timely Comics and Atlas Comics, had begun to bore Lee, who was trapped telling stories and molds and genres that he no longer believed in. He wished to quit and focus his time on writing novels, but on advice from his late wife Joan, he decided to start 
a new series, written the way he wanted to write it. Joan Lee argued that if Marvel didn't like it or didn't want to publish it, then he should quit. Lee teamed up with Jack Kirby, already well-known as the co-creator of Captain America, and in November of that year, Fantastic Four number one was released. The series was a smash success, with Lee and Kirby staying on this series for an incredible 102 issues, lasting into 1970, a record-length run that would remain unbeaten in mainstream comics until 2006. when Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley finally outpaced them with their 103rd straight issue of Ultimate Spider-Man. Bagley stayed on the title until issue 111 in September 2007. The Fantastic Four were a huge hit for Marvel, and Lee stayed with the company, becoming the public name and face of not just Marvel, but the industry as a whole. Off the success of the four... Lee would co-create characters like the Hulk, Iron Man, Black Widow, Daredevil, Ant-Man, the Wasp, Thor, and the Black Panther, as well as teams like the X-Men, the Avengers, and Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. Collaborators like Steve Ditko, who created Spider-Man with Lee, would go on to create characters like Doctor Strange. Jim Strango would bring the popular spy genre to Marvel with Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., dragging the former Sergeant Fury kicking and screaming from World War II into the Cold War, giving him an aesthetic that Guy Hamilton, Ian Fleming, and Patrick McGuhan would almost certainly appreciate. The Bronze Age at the start of the 1970s, the comic book industry began to undergo seismic changes. Jack Kirby left Marvel for DC, and Mort Weisner resigned from his post as editor of the Superman titles and was replaced by Julius Schwartz. Many veteran creators left the industry or were promoted to executive positions, so an influx of new writers and artists began to emerge. Social issues began to become a focus of the industry, and sweeping changes of the lives of major characters, such as the deaths of George and Gwen Stacy in The Amazing Spider-Man and Jean Grey's dramatic transformation into the Phoenix, became hallmarks of the era. Green Lantern and Green Arrow began to share a series written by Denny O'Neill and drawn by Neil Adams, who would later re-team for an epic Batman run that, among other things, introduced Raj al Ghul. In the Green Lantern-Green Arrow crossover, readers bore witness to stories about real-world issues like racism and drug addiction, brought to life in front of them by beloved characters. Green Arrow's long-term sidekick, Speedy, a founding member of the Teen Titans, was revealed to be a heroin addict. David Michaelin and Bob Layton teamed with John Romita Jr. and Carmen Infantino for Demon in a Bottle, a legendary Iron Man story 
that dealt with the character's growing alcoholism issues and served as a major influence for the first two Iron Man films starring recovering addict Robert Downey Jr. The X-Men, who had always served as stand-ins for marginalized groups, grew in popularity as the team diversified to resemble a world a bit more with the debut of Giant Size X-Men number 1 in 1975, introducing characters like Thunderbird, Colossus, Storm, and Nightcrawler, and seeing them join the team alongside three new members who were already established characters, Sunfire, Banshee, and, of course, Wolverine. Feminism became an even stronger theme in superhero comics than it had even been at the height of Wonder Woman's popularity, with characters like She-Hulk, Miss, now Captain, Marvel, and Spider-Woman leading the charge. Characters like Luke Cage, Iron Fist, The Punisher, The White Tiger, Howard the Duck, Black Lightning, Machine Man, Cyborg, Vixen, Shade the Changing Man, the Johnny Blaze version of Ghost Rider, Blade, Jon Stewart, Madame Xanadu, and Swamp Thing were created, showing increased fascination in not just various genres within shared universe, but also increased interest in representing the contemporaneous struggles of African Americans and the Latino community, as well as Vietnam veterans and the mentally ill and immigrants. Many of these stories had also environmentalist leanings and strong anti-war messages. Meanwhile, the underground comic scene began to emerge in a bigger way than ever before, largely off the back of Robert Crumb, a legendary figure in the field who created characters like Fritz the Cat and Mr. Natural. Harvey Pecker's American Splendor and Gilbert Shelton's The Fabulous Fury Freak Brothers were, and still are, iconic works of the industry, underground or otherwise. The first all-female comic was published in 1970 to combat the largely sexist work of the underground scene and to advocate for the women's lib movement. Entitled, It Ain't Me, Babe, several of the creators involved went on to contribute to the series Women's Comics, which ran from 1972 to 1992. The first issue of Women's Comics featured the Trina Robbins story, Sandy Comes Out, which was the first comics narrative to feature an out lesbian character. The mid to late 1970s also featured the rise of the comic book specialty shop, resulting in comics being less of a newsstand fixture and more of a boutique hobby. War, romance, and western comics began to fade away, and the first graphic novels began to emerge in the late 70s and early 80s, with titles including 
Will Eisner's A Contract with God, and Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Intra-company crossovers were frequent events, including X-Men vs. the New Teen Titans and Superman vs. the Amazing Spider-Man. Comics based on other licensed properties, including Godzilla, Star Wars, Planet of the Apes, Logan's Run, Star Trek, and Transformers became increasingly common, and revivals of pulp characters like The Shadow and Conan the Barbarian were also successful. The late 70s also saw the so-called DC implosion, where DC Comics increased the length of individual issues, including added backup stories and higher prices. However, sales dropped so severely that the industry almost went down with the bevy of cancelled DC books. This had a lasting effect on Charlton Comics, whose characters included Blue Beetle, The Question, and Peter Cannon, Thunderbolt. The sales declines caused by the DC implosion hit Charlton hard, and despite multiple attempts, the company could not be saved. In 1983, many of Charlton's characters were purchased by DC Comics, and Charlton closed its doors in 1985. In many ways, the shuttling of Charlton, combined with its most recognizable characters being purchased by DC, led directly into the modern age of comics. Nowhere is this more noticeable than in one of the first and arguably most seminal works of the modern age, The Watchmen. Despite all of the history that we've covered today, from the Golden Age to the Silver Age, and all the way through the Bronze Age, there's still so much to cover in the modern age. So we're going to save that for another episode. I hope you'll join me next week as we sit down to talk with one of the more modern writers. Bill Williams was kind enough to share about his career and experiences in the comic book industry. Thanks again for joining me as we explore Beyond the Panels. Beyond the Panels is a Closet Monster Studios production. You can find us on Twitter at Beyond Panels Pod or on our website at www.beyondpanelspod.wordpress.com. Thanks again.